two things seem to be at play for me. One is, is it possible within an artistic practice to raise the flag that something is afoot, that there's a challenge among us, that there's a monster in the building? And I try to do that in the most poetic ways possible, not to make the art dirty in a way with the things that are on the ground, because I want to make poetry. And then there are other times where I use platforms like Rebuild Foundation and things that happen on the block in my neighborhood, where I use those as the kind of tactical battleground to express my political views. Theaster Gates's work, by his own characterization, doesn't easily fall into a single category. Gates was born in Chicago in 1973, and it's his home city and its neighborhoods that have been central to his work, which aims to revitalize underserved urban areas by melding urban design and contemporary art. In 2010, he launched the Rebuild Foundation, which has reimagined what an urban property development practice can be and do. The Foundation's projects, Gates says, allow people to see demonstrated what could happen if black resources and black influence was used in a black space. And if that experiment was successful, he says, others would take up the charge. As anti-racism demonstrations and the Black Lives Matter movement look set to influence this year's presidential election in a significant way, Theaster Gates' work is as resonant as ever. I'm Thomas Lewis, and for our final episode of a special series of conversations ahead of the US presidential election, I spoke to Theaster Gates for the big interview. Theaster Gates, a very warm welcome to you to the big interview. To begin, Theasta, it has seemed to me that a lot of your work, the themes that it has dealt with over the years, that many of those themes have played out in the United States over the past few months. From your vantage point, when a lot of these themes are sharpened by an election campaign and an unprecedented election year, how are things unfolding from your vantage point and in the context of your work over the years? It's really clear now that we are a nation divided and that a part of our nation seems preoccupied with the maintenance and the ongoing determined care of a power construct that works for some and not all. And the maintenance of that construct requires violence in the military to maintain. And then there's another part of the country that seems despondent and without leadership and leadership capacity. And as a result, I think violence also emerges from the underbelly of culture because those who don't have are in direct connection with those who do. And it creates a tremendous amount of tension. So it it feels like militarized power that maintains racial oppression and, and social oppression. And then despondency and frustration for the masses that results in the eruption of violence in our streets. And you talk there about a lack of leadership in in many ways. Where do those leaders come from and what do they look like in your mind? Well, I think that the challenge has been for too long, we think that one elected official or a constellation of elected officials, that they can do the work alone without the ongoing responsibility that each individual has to the promotion of justice, to the maintenance of equity, to the creation of new opportunity. And so I think that in some ways, 
while I think leadership is important and elected officials are important, it has also made the average citizen less politically active than it should be. And so you have small clusters of extremely active people, and then you have a population who's grown weary of the judicial and, and political processes and maybe feel like they can't offer a whole lot. It's a moment where I feel like maybe in the past, more people believe that they have the capacity for leadership and maybe leadership had a bit more of a moral or social imperative than it does now. And I kind of wish those days would return. The characterization you laid out there is interesting, I think, given that so many people are talking about the, the kind of energy that's present in the United States at the moment leading up to Election Day, be it from the demonstrations, be it from what the pandemic has laid bare. And that's coupled with reports that party registration numbers have been higher than ever before during certain months leading up to the election. How do you reconcile those two things, this apparent sort of lack of leadership, but this energy that people, that many voters appear to be feeling this time around? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely believe that the need for new leadership has spurred more of us on to be more politically active than maybe we've ever been. That there is a fear that the maintenance of the current political regime is not a good thing and that it could happen. And so it's been interesting to see the pop community, kind of the cultural community, help to mobilize young people to do more. At the same time that that's happening, you're also seeing the dismantling of the postal system and the kind of creation of this national anxiety where infrastructure that could help to ensure that people have the ability to vote, that some of that infrastructure is being torn away out of the rights fear that more people will be mobilized. And so, again, there's an excitement in the doing, and then there's also the undoing that seems real. So it feels like there is a kind of tension between parties and power. And that idea of mobilization, has that been a key motive, would you say, a key driver of your work, which has spanned so many different mediums over the years? Well, I would say that two things seem to be at play for me. One is, is it possible within an artistic practice or within my artistic practice to raise the flag that something is afoot, that there's a challenge among us, that there's a monster in the building? And I try to do that in the most poetic ways possible, kind of not to make the art dirty in a way with the things that are on the ground, because I want to make poetry in a way. And then there are other times where I use platforms like Rebuild Foundation and things that happen on the block in my neighborhood, where I use those as the kind of tactical battleground to express my political views. In some ways, I don't think that everything that I make is trying to channel the truth of this political moment. There there are other things on my mind let's say. But then there are definitely, you know, in my everyday, I'm also concerned about injustice, the possibility of equity, the challenges of economic disparity. And those things, I have even more tactical strategies for ensuring that the excess that I have access to, that people around me also benefit from that. And I feel like I try to keep it, yeah, try to keep it one-to-one, you know, me to my community. And that idea of making 
poetry. It seems to me that the poetry you've made during your career, that the intention of that has always been for people to live within it, to have that woven through their neighbourhood or their part of the city or the institution that they use. Is there a particular work for you that you think speaks to that on a personal level most clearly? Well, you know, when I started building Dorchester projects and maybe the Arts Bank, I was clear that those projects, they were, they were not works of art, exactly. They were like durational projects that would allow people to see, demonstrated, what could happen if Black resources and Black influence was used in a Black space. And that if that project, if that experiment, if that performance was successful, it would expire and others would take up the charge and become fully cognizant that even though the neighborhood where we are is seemingly filled with death, violence, decay, drugs, bad education, bad politics, that it was actually a place where beauty could bloom, where excellence could bloom, where connoisseurship could be developed, where life and light could live. And that if that was happening, then there would be a thousand lights. And then my little light wouldn't seem as significant. And so the piece I'm excited about is that my work would become insignificant relative to all of the great work happening around me. And I feel myself becoming irrelevant every day. But I also think that like then, how do you export those ideas? And one of the projects that I liked the most was at Documented 13. When I was in Kassel, I worked with the curator, Carolyn Christoph Bergiv, and Carolyn gave me an abandoned building. Now, an abandoned or an abandoned hotel in Kassel is very, very different from the truth of life on the ground in Chicago. But we were nonetheless able to take a formerly barren place that hadn't been used since the Second World War and that had a kind of heaviness, and in a way, a heaviness that couldn't be overcome because it was a historic building. It would require so much money to make it active. And here we were, 12, 13 people who were able to do a kind of temporary surgery on the Huguenotten House so that during Documented 13, tremendous life could be built inside this corpse. And I think that it didn't need to last forever. It just needed to, to live. And it needed to live in a key moment. And it felt like not only people from all over the world, but people in Kassel responded to that, so much so that then even people wanted to continue to use the building after Documented. So I'm really proud that sometimes what you're doing is you're like, you're just demonstrating that life, that there's still life in a thing that we thought was dead. I'd love to talk a bit more about the Stony Island Arts Bank, Theaster, in a bit more detail in a moment. But when you look back through your work, the projects you've undertaken, and then the civil tapestries, they struck me once again, looking through them again. It brought to mind a relatively recent occurrence during the height of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the US when Donald Trump deployed the military to clear protesters from Lafayette Park, just outside the White House. It seemed to me that your work from a few years ago, by this stage, just still spoke so directly to something that was happening right now. 
Yeah, it's really unfortunate that the civil tapestries continue to be relevant. You know, in, in some ways, that part of my work feels like it's an ongoing monument to the existence of racialized violence, the persistence of racialized violence. And even though it's cloaked in minimalism and colorism, the cloaking is trying to at least continue to acknowledge that there is racialized violence that happens against peaceful people all the time, all over the world. You're right that at Lafayette, I think that there are these moments where we're reminded again that things in 2020 and, and the challenges that exist, that we're not very far from uh, 1967, 68. Because there continues to exist a group of people for which the, the, the sharing of power and resources is just not something that they're excited about. And I think given Trump's call to history, if you will, Trump is in some ways reigniting white people's right to a kind of racialized difference in America. And this is a story you've told several times over the years. But I wonder if you could just go back to the idea for the civil tapestries and unpick that a little bit for us. I love this. When I was reading Marcel Duchamp's biography, you know, the creation of, of some of his earliest works, he would tell a different story every time. So for R.M. Mutt, the beginning of that, of that work was different. But so that I'm not bored with myself, I'd say that a friend of mine had access to these very old fire hoses. And my friend owned a kind of recycle company. And because the hoses don't disintegrate, they were just being stored because he didn't want to put them in the landfill. In that sense, already, this idea that there is a kind of non-disintegration of this pervasive violence. Anyway, he was saying to me, Diasa, you could use these hoses, you could, you know, you, know, you could make land banks. You could, he was trying to find examples because he had this lot and he wanted to get it out of the space. And so I said, well, give me a couple of them. And I swear to God, they sat in my studio for three or four years. And then I was having a conversation with friends and just, we were talking about how all of these people who marched with King and all of these, what, what felt like the great strides that were destined to happen as a result of these student strikes and these sit-ins and these protests that in a way, those sit-ins and protests that led to a kind of civil rights movement, then a black power movement, then a black is beautiful movement, that in some ways it didn't totally redeem itself. And that all we have left with are these trinkets, these trophies, these things that say, oh, I was there at Washington at the monument. I was on the mall. I was walking with King in Detroit, in Chicago, in Selma, in Birmingham, we were there. But in fact, the ambition of the civil rights project didn't completely fulfill itself. And so the hoses for me became a way to enter the kind of contemporary and conceptual art world. And instead of it just being a reclaimed industrial object, like an object that maybe Eva Hesse could have used or Donald Judd could have used, that, that in a way it was my Carl Andre, it was my Malievich, you know, it was an attempt to enter contemporary art 
with this coded, embedded, seemingly indecipherable message that I could both have victory as a minimalist and that minimalism could also carry the truth of racism. And that in a way I live with both of those truths of wanting to make good art and wanting to tell the story that is not fully told and not always wanting to do that in ways that are representational, but in some cases, ways that are conceptual and abstract. And that idea of abstraction, Theasta, the idea of not wanting to, I guess, spoon feed what you're trying to say when you create and make a project, that it's almost as much about the reaction of the people who use the works that you make that seems to have seems to play a more important part in your your thinking about the projects you undertake in that frame i wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of the idea of a neighborhood has changed for you over the years you have a background in urban design and urban planning and a lot of your work has straddled the idea of art and and what makes a neighborhood of how you can design a place to live well, let me try to bridge a somewhat complicated question that on the, on the front end, I believe that I have an investment in form and formalism, okay, so, as, as an artist. So let's say that form and structure is important. And so what was great about the civil tapestries was that I could give the hoses a form that were legible to the art world. And through that form, I could also load the form with additional content. I think that neighborhoods constitute a form that is uh, legible to its constituents, that people know what to do with the houses and businesses there. But I also think that the existing form needs deep intervention in order to be the best form possible for the people who live there, for the content. And so in some ways, what urban planning gave me were the tools that would allow me to manipulate the form and then manipulate how the form was received by others so that then when others said, hey, this is a very interesting intervention in the form, I could go back to my mayor, I could go back to the Department of Buildings, back to the Department of Planning and say, we've adjusted the form. People need to live and work where they live. And so your form needs to shift a little bit. And where there would have been maybe consternation or fight back, as a result of the way that I was manipulating form, power said, that's interesting. Try it. So I think that, that in that sense, my philosophical, my set of abilities is not necessarily only content, but it's really trying to look at the form and say, there's a problem with our form. And so whether you have to look at the history of land use in a neighborhood, the history of a building's use, or the use of tools like what's in the U.S., we call it a plan development or a special plan development, tools that normally developers use to do big projects. Can we use those same tools to say, we need more to happen in our neighborhoods? And so I think in that sense, I'm an abstract urbanist you know, wanting to use those tools to just do more for people that normally don't have access to the tools. And just to put you on the spot, Theaster, what would one of those tools be in terms of a a property developer's toolkit that you you alluded to there? 
So let's say with the Arts Bank, it was a city-owned building. And the building had, it was a, a danger. The city was being sued for buildings like this because the terracotta was falling. It could hurt a citizen. The citizen would sue the city. So even though the language out in the world says that I received the building for a dollar, in fact, it required that I stabilize the building immediately. And that cost a lot of money. And I had to say to the city what the building would be used for. So a traditional developer would look at the building and say, we could divide the building into lots of little parts and rent those little parts. And the renting becomes the finance tool that justifies the investment. I knew that I wanted the power of the bank was that it was one of the last big, beautiful buildings in our neighborhood. And just the restoration of the building was the affect that I was interested in. And so my tools, instead of just thinking about conventional finance tools, I was actually thinking about tools of restoration and restorative justice, that this building would be first a symbol that Black people who live in Black space can restore Black space. And then the restorative justice part would be, instead of just making it little offices for 17 people, let's make it a community asset for anybody who wants to come and that the bank would become this kind of a repository for archives and, and then a place where exhibitions could happen and we could deploy those archives. And so in order to make that work, I feel like I needed an extra set of visionary tools and an alternative form of financing in order to make it happen. And I needed to crowdsource the resources necessary in order to make that happen. And so for a couple years, it just meant that I was on the campaign uh, trail asking people to believe in me while I believe in this building. And today I feel like it's one of the most successful activations of abandoned space that I've ever done. I was watching an interview you gave before speaking to you today where you were describing the process of raising money to undertake the Stony Island Arts Bank project and many of the banks wouldn't provide you the financial support or wouldn't provide loans to help finance that project. It was nice to hear that you found the irony of that slightly delicious and that you decided to create your own bank bonds from pieces of the facade of the bank you were renovating, the bank itself creating its own currency. I thought there's a real magic to that idea. And you went on to sell those bank bonds at Art Basel to raise money for the project. You know, again, I was looking at these moments in art history where Duchamp had a bank bond that he was using. He had created the Monte Carlo bond so that he could go and play at the casino. And I thought this, this act of absurdity was so amazing because he understood his power as an artist. Like, if I make this piece of paper and someone buys it and I only make 25 of them, they will immediately accrue value if my value as an artist continues to grow. And I thought, well, why don't I create my own bond for the arts bank? And instead of wasting the money at, at a casino, maybe it would be a way that those who want to feel like they're active participants in the bank, they could then invest. And it is my hope that that bond will accrue in value as well as the legacy of the bank for those who will use it beyond me. 
And I wanted to ask you, Theaster, about the role the church has played in your life. Uh, Many of the aspects of church life have played a role in your work over the years. Does the church still play the same kind of role it did in your earlier work as it does now? It's a great question. In some ways, I'm not sure how active the church overall, the church, big, big C, little c, has been in this political moment. But I do feel like the gift that I got from my religious experience, and I think this is also back to what tools I have that are different from a developer's tools. I think that what the church gave me was the willingness to believe longer that things that are not worth believing in could have tremendous restorative value. And so, you know, whether it's metaphors about salvation and salvage or metaphors about redemption and resurrection, that those, that faith in a way, if faith could be a tool, then I felt like I could believe in my community long enough to actually, and and with my acts, with my works, both have faith and work to see a light shine. Later on in my religious trajectory, as I learned more about Buddhism and Shintoism and kind of Eastern philosophies and religions, the thing that I realized was that as much as I believe in the material world, crosses that if you look at them, those crosses have a redemptive value and that that there's a relationship between seeing the cross and then understanding some act of redemption, that what Buddhism and Shintoism gave me was also that the material world is not worth holding on to. And that if you were comfortable letting the material world move through you and maybe even getting to a point where you had no investment in the material world, that you might be able to live in some way a better life. And so I think that while I've spent this last decade accumulating things, I feel like I'll spend the next decade letting them go. And so that's also what's interesting about my artistic journey is that I realized that art is part about giving people belief through the things that you make or making people reflect or giving them hope or charging them with intellectual and social content. But I think that the reason that the art market is so powerful and the art world is so powerful is because in many ways where the church and the synagogue and the shrine, they used to be places where we generated hope through these material objects that were in those shrines and in those buildings, that's no longer the place where we generate hope. I feel like artists are the the priests of our time and that people look to artists for something to believe in. And so it it feels like an interesting mandate. You got to be careful what you put in the world. And you have a solo show on at the Gagosian Gallery in New York City at the moment, Theaster, is that right? Yeah, so... It's the first exhibition that I've had in New York since the Whitney Biennial 2010. And it's, it's really the first gallery exhibition I've ever had in New York. And it's my first real exhibition with Gagosian. The show is called Black Vessel. And I decide to go back to my history with ceramics and my love of roofing to offer a kind of, basically a kind of autobiography of my material life. Instead of doing something bombastic, the show feels good. But instead of something bombastic, it's actually quite 
a formal exhibition where the brick plays an important role as um, this basic material that has the ability to do unbelievable things in the world. You know, I'm very excited to be there, but also I'm excited to be kind of a different bird in the Gagosian constellation of artists. It, it, and they've been, it's been really fun and interesting. And I feel like I'll go to New York and really kind of celebrate my 10th year anniversary as a professional artist, I guess. And that idea of being a different bird, Theaster, just finally, do you think there are going to be different birds floating around in lots of different contexts following the period we're in once the dust settles, whenever that comes? Yeah, it it seems some people needed COVID to re-examine their values or they needed the result of COVID to be alone with their thoughts, to question what matters to them. And I don't think I needed a pandemic. I was already asking myself certain questions, but I'm so excited that most of the artists I know, they've had time to reconsider what matters. And I'm very, very excited to see the result of that reconsidering. My thanks to Theaster Gates. His first solo exhibition in New York City in a decade is currently on show at the Gagosian Gallery until the 19th of December. That concludes this special US election series of The Big Interview. You can listen back to all of our conversations at monocle.com forward slash radio through the Monocle 24 app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Big Interview is produced in London by Yolene Goffin. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now. Thank you.